Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on earth, for you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, we will also be revealed with him in glory. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, our praises come up to you for the risen Savior, raising up the Savior for our sins. Thank you, Lord, raising up the Savior as your signature on the success of that wonderful redemptive work on the cross. Thank you, Father. Thank you that he bore your wrath. Oh, what agony he suffered. Oh, and Lord, so that we can be reconciled to you, have peace, and be your friend because of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Oh, the bounty, the bounty of all the wonderful things because of what you've done in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks and praise. And Father, now for those who are unable to be with us, not well, and fighting their own battles with this, this mortal flesh, oh, give them grace, the grace of joy, mercies to them to rejoice in you. And Father, our hearts ring with joy that we have this living hope of seeing our Savior one day face to face. Now, Father, as we open up your word, we look in what you have regarded the disciple, well, Luke the doctor, Lord, to what he said, what he recorded under the guidance of the Spirit. Open our eyes to see wonderful things. Lord, we would also pray for the city of Jerusalem in the news, as it so often is, torn by conflict, those who hate Israel, those who seek to destroy her, and then, Lord, believers who are caught in the middle of this conflict, those assemblies. I remember that church, that, those pastors who preached faithfully there in the city of Jerusalem inside the walls every Sunday. Oh, and for those two Palestinian pastors, We'll never forget that conversation with them, faithfully serving you in Bethlehem, declaring your word week to week of the coming again of the Messiah. Oh God, I pray that you will protect that land, protect those people, that the evil, will not, evil one will not do his awful, horrible work of seeking to destroy what little peace does exist there, and that many will come to Christ Oh, that many will believe on Jesus as the Messiah, their Messiah, please. Now again, Lord, we ask that your spirit will work in through your word in this time. In Christ's name, amen. I have a report that comes from Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. Here is the report. I'm telling you what has transpired already this morning. It's amazing what has happened. An angel rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb before sunrise. Women who followed Jesus visited the tomb and discovered him missing. Mary Magdalene, she left to tell Peter and John. Peter and John hurried to the tomb. Peter outrunning John. No, excuse me. John outran Peter. I don't want to get that wrong, but then Peter burst into the empty tomb. The other women remaining at the tomb saw two angels who told them about the resurrection. Yes, and then there was Peter and John who visited the tomb. But yet at this point, no one has seen Jesus yet. 
when will he appear? Well, this is in the report. Mary Magdalene returned to the tomb and Jesus appeared to her alone in the garden. That was his first appearance. And then Jesus appeared to the other women, Mary, mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. This was his second appearance. And then those who guarded Jesus' tomb reported to the religious rulers how the angel rolled away the stone. They were then bribed. <laughs> and Jesus appeared to Peter. This was his third appearance. Well, that's the report, but I want to continue the report because in Luke chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, if you do not, you would like to look toward the screen. So I will give you the opportunity to double dip. You can look at the screen, you can look at the scriptures, and I'm going to read this with uh, some purpose. Uh, in addition to just reading, I'm going to make some comments. And I would like for you to follow along and this is an incredible passage. I thought of this, a string of diamonds. Oh, diamonds, prisms they are. The lights shining through those diamonds, radiating the colors. I liken this chapter to a necklace of diamonds. You know why I say that? There is so much here. I actually got so, I was anticipating reading this so much that I said, I've got to make a few comments on this. I'm just overflowing with the one. Luke's account of the resurrection, this is the fourth appearance here. Uh, Luke's account sometimes is kind of overlooked. We can go to Matthew, go to Mark, go to John. They speak to it. Well, let's see what Dr. Luke says. Follow with me now. Luke chapter 24 and beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now this is, uh, says on the first day of the week, this is early Sunday morning. Of course, the day, first day of the week began on Saturday night, Shabbat, at sundown. And early dawn, and they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Keep your eye on those words that focus upon the physicality of the resurrection. Body. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by in dazzling apparel. And as, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands to the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale. And they did not believe. They did not believe them. Now this is significant. What you're going to notice in all the narratives, I reread just every one of them this morning. The women are highlighted. Do you know why? I'll tell you later. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, it really gets even another kind of, into another kind of excitement here. 
That very day, this is on Sunday, it's later in the afternoon, and you need to pick up on the fact that this is just a very important part of the Easter story. Don't forget that. Two of them, mm, that's with interest. Uh, you know, the Old Testament makes much of this. Witnesses, two, three witnesses. That comes up uh, frequently. Two witnesses, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, I got interested in this. We walk. We time ourselves. Oh, good walk if you're really getting along 22 minutes a mile, maybe 24. Who knows? Seven miles. So they've been going. It's about, a, I figured it, at least two and a half, three hour walk from Jerusalem. We don't know where this village of Emmaus was. All right, just, I'm trying to show you that this is the, the earthiness of this account. Follow me now. Let's go back to the text. So it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things. Ah, you know, ah that triumphal entry. Don't you remember? Oh, what a day that was. The crowds were shouting. The children were singing. Oh, Jesus was just, it was just uh, lavished with all kinds of attention and going into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they're talking. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, very emphatic in the text. You can see that here, this reflexive pronoun. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Oh, you got to like this. <laughs> this is exciting. They're walking along. They don't know who he is. <laughs> he comes up alongside. But you, the reader, you know. All right, you're in it. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Okay, they're batting thoughts back and forth. And there must have been a little bit of Eeyoreism in this. You know, man, the disciples were like this, Eeyore. Oh, it was such, we had such great expectations. And now he's gone. And they can't find the body. And well, and they, this they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? <laughs> yes, laugh. <laughs> we know what's happening here, don't we? Uh oh, he said to them, uh, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. They got that right, but not enough yet. Mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priest, uh, yeah, responsible for Jesus' death they were, our chief priest and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. Uh, a lot of these contrasts in here. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were hoping for this immediate kingdom. They were. It was a legitimate expectation, but poorly, wrongly timed. It was not time for that. Another kind of redemption comes into the story, highlighted such. But this is the where, you know, this is where Peter was and the others, this kingdom, this kingdom. 
And you know, the politics of it all sitting there heavily on their minds. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day. Well, don't let that one be lost on you. The third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels. But that didn't seem to alleviate their sadness. Uh, angels can't do everything. We got to see the risen Savior. Who said that he was alive? Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. So it's confirmed by human beings. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should that's a very strong word here. It means have to. It's a theological must. Have to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture, oh my, wouldn't you have loved to have been in on that walk? <laughs> oh, let your, don't, let your imagination go too far. We're not through with the text. To them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he did a little pretend, uh, pretending here, calculatingly so. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with him. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. This was not a communion service, but you, I think, are right to have a little mental reflex to the communion service, Passover evening. Yes, okay. He's the host. He turns into the host here. And he vanished from their sight. Whoa! Key on that one a little bit. Vanished from, so that's wait a, minute, a body vanished. What are we into here? Keep reading. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Oh, see, that conversation and walk and talk with Jesus, it wasn't just an, an intellectual exercise. Were, their emotions were stirred up, their hearts burned. That is, could, they were lifted up emotionally. And their despair is going toward hope and joy and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem wait a minute you've just walked three hours it's night you're turning around you got some really good news and you're going to walk back to Jerusalem I don't let that be lost on you I mean this these things are so amazing that just shows that they were just overflowing with uh, with joy and they found the 11 and those that with them gathered together saying the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread and as they were talking about these things 
Jesus himself stood among them and, pause button, what? Boop, he's there. He vanished, now he's there. A body, flesh and bones. Okay, peace, shalom. And he shalom, he said. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. This is no hallucination. Touch me and see. Just look, look at the word verbs there. Saw, see, 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 showed, stood among them. These are all important in the text telling us something about the resurrected Christ. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still but disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Now let's Luke put that in. This is a real, this is Jesus. A body. We, we were singing. It was a, one of the song selections. Focus on that. It's not merely some visionary experience. They weren't daydreaming. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you think that might be important in the story? Going back to the Old Testament? Hold on, more on that in a little bit. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. See, God has foretold these things in the Old Testament, and now they can begin to see and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Referencing the Old Testament, did you catch that in the Old Testament? If you're sitting there with a, hmm, where was that? That's our problem. That's not the Old Testament's problem. <laughs> and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Yeah, I had to read it. Now you're ready. I see three truths that just come bubbling up here. There are more. Believe me. This, believe me on this, there is a, this is a diamond necklace in this chapter. You could take so many of these issues and develop them and expand them. But we're going to take three issues that I see that arise that will guide us into the meaning and the glory and the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The very first of these, I'll pivot around verse 25, the resurrected Christ said that he was a victor over death, not a victim. No victimology here. It's interesting. Uh, you know the movie, The Passion of the Christ? You remember that one? It, was, it came out sometime years, what, decade or more ago. That, do you know the youth in Switzerland 
where um, it, it was not the movie was not marketed in Switzerland because the Swiss culture society thought, well, this is a downer. This story, the Passion of Christ. Now, uh, I will say this: that there are reasons why some movies tend to a, uh, really focus, 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 focus on the bloodiness and the physical pain and torture. More about that later, maybe, but still. But they didn't want the betrayal of defeat. They said, that's of no interest to the youth. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Let's go through this. Let's, let's, let's pivot around this fact that he was a victor, victor over death. You see, the disciples were not ready to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. They weren't ready for it. Their reaction makes them look like, uh, actually, some of those skeptics, some of those who, who've doubted. The, I, I have a quote looking at me right here. It's from a scholar of the New Testament. He said, it takes repeated appearances to convince the disciples that Jesus has been raised. They're just as unprepared for this event as we would have been. The resurrection was not created by the church. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. Uh, that's important. Now, the women also, let's follow through on some things here that the text, also here in Luke, as well as in the other three Gospels, that show us that Jesus was not a victim. That's the fact. Not a victim. There was a calculated, sovereignly directed purpose of God in this whole matter of death and resurrection. The women came to the tomb. They weren't expecting a resurrection. Angels said essentially, Jesus is alive. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, okay. Well, they hadn't seen him yet. But the resurrection of Jesus was by divine design. We know that in 4, 24, 6, and 7. You, I pointed out the word must. 18 times in Luke's gospel, he uses that word must in a significant way to underscore that God's plan was being unfolded. Back to these female witnesses. It vouches for the authenticity of, gospel, of the gospel accounts. Now this runs counter, ladies. I think this is some legitimate biblical feminism here. All right, here well. That this runs counter to the first century value placed on the witness of women. Not a lot of value was placed by the men on the witness of women to their loss. The first century church would never have created a story with the main first witnesses were women. <laughs> it's the Spirit of God puts it here. And the women, they're right in it, in the middle of it. The disciples were reluctant to believe. They were poised on the brink of belief, but not quite there. <clears throat> Peter runs to the tomb, marveling, but he's still incredulous when he gets there. He'd been impressed, but did not believe. Now, let me unpack this a little bit more. Still, Jesus was not a victim. This is a victory over death. Take this. Now, I've noted those occasions. I think there were at least three occasions where it's emphasized that in the Old Testament, it is written that the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, that they're in the Old Testament. Did you see them? 
All right, well, have your own Easter egg hunt. Go through the Old Testament there and begin to look again at passages. I could tell you about some of these. Um, we've done messages in years past on these, these stories that unfold. But Isaiah is just a motherload of truth. And that one, think the four servant songs and Isaiah 53 and other passages as well. But here's what comes out of this. I'll summarize it for you. First of all, we know that Jesus would be a coming, the coming Jesus would be the prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15. There's a strong, strong hint there. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Moses was a type of Christ. That is, he was designed in history by God and who he was as a deliverer out of Egypt in a miraculous work through the Red Sea and performing miracles. You, you, you see something there? Oh, no, we got our New Testament glasses on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he was a type of Christ in his service, what Hebrews 3, 2 says, in his office as a prophet, Deuteronomy 34, 10, and Luke 24, 19. But that's not all. Old Testament, he's not a victim. He is a victor over death. He was the son of David. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Son of David. That's loaded. Loaded. Oh, no, no. It really flourishes and really explodes in the New Testament, but think about it. It's a, it's a messianic title. And when you go through the New Testament, you will see often that it's used by people who are very needy, like the blind. Oh, son of David! Oh, there was some connection, an important connection. And this is what Isaiah 11, 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Son of David, it's rooted in the Davidic covenant. All those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, oh, they unfold so much in the new covenant. All right, further, he was the suffering servant, the Messiah. Isaiah 53 and following. Peter spoke of this, true, later, but under the direct guidance of the Spirit, 1 Peter 1.11, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings and the glories to follow. Peter's got it there. <laughs> when he writes 1 Peter, he's got it. It's clear. He saw how these were combined. But there was a time in, when he stumbled on this. And then, also, he was the Son of Man, Old Testament, He's not a victim. He's a victor. Old Testament, he was the son of man. 25 times in Luke's gospel, son of, son of. I mean, of the order of. In Daniel 7, 13, it's used of the coming of the son of man. You know what title you, Jesus used more of himself than any other title? Son of man. Why? The emphasis in this title is upon the one who will judge humanity. It's Daniel 7, 13 and 14, coming as judge. Oh, you know, just sidelight, briefly, briefly. Movies about Jesus, I don't care what it is, whatever movie or series. You know, the message is always bigger than the media. 
You're never, you can say, well, I'm, oh, I'm watching the real thing. No, you're not. You want the real story? Uh, read the scriptures. <laughs> That's the best place to stay and camp out on and have your feet firmly planted in it. I say that because, well, I'll more on that a little later. So here we are. Here's the resurrection. Oh, side note, footnote, if you will. You know, there's something that's come into our vocabulary, into our popular culture, and uh, I, I, surely you think Christians wouldn't buy into this, but it, it comes out of the Far East, comes out of India and Hinduism, reincarnation. And some want to make this story, want to read into it some kind of reincarnation. No, this is a resurrection. This is Jesus. He's not coming back as somebody else. Not at all. And we have to have a resurrection. I'll say this different ways. But it's proof that he was a true prophet. True prophet. Prophets have to have come to pass what they say. And without the resurrection, there is no gospel. No. It's not playing make-believe with the resurrection. And actually, that would make us false witnesses. This would be, talk about the Liars Club, we would be meeting. The Liars Club is meeting on Sunday. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. All right, let's go to that second truth. I said that there were, there were several truths that just come up in here. I want us to look at this one carefully. The resurrected Christ said that he was a real being, not a phantom. Not a phantom. And what the resurrection of Christ does is that it gives real hope and encouragement to believers. This is not an hallucination. I... I'll just say this briefly about this hallucination thing. I, I, I looked at this again, and there are at least seven different uh, theories of, by skeptics on trying to deny, explain away the bodiless tomb. This is one of them. And I have, I have a book that goes through these and gives attention, written by a journalist, a Christian. But this hallucination thing... Just, I don't want to stay on this point because this is really, it's not worth the time, quite frankly. It may be in another setting, give it more attention. But this isn't something that just came up, uh, and it's sometimes it's referred to as a conversion disorder. we got disorders for everything. It's a conversion disorder, which is, by definition, a psychological condition characterized by such physical symptoms as blindness or paralysis in the absence of specific neurological or medical causes. And this was brought about by inner turbulence, conflict, doubt, and guilt. Some want to attribute to this whole resurrection experience here as if it was some kind of hallucination. Oh, well, let me tell you this. There is much that we could say in unpacking what James' response was. The apostle James was. He was a skeptic. Paul's a persecutor of the church. No evidence exists to the claim that James and Paul were afflicted with a conversion disorder. You may come across that kind of stuff. It's out there. And so hallucinations, to be gripped by kind of some kind of mass hysteria, some emotional or psychological force that drives people along to believe something that's not true. 
I'll just say this and leave it, kind of leave it at this. I know what an hallucination is. I had COVID-19. It's been a couple of years ago. And it was, looking back on it, it was kind of a serious deal at the time. I was just hopeful. I'm trusting the Lord, get through it. Um, I can, I'm not going into the details, but to only say this, I had an hallucination. My family will vouch for this. I was telling them something that I saw happen and I was convinced that it had happened. And it was, uh, I, I even was watching, I was encouraging them to watch the news to confirm what I had already seen. I was hallucinating. It didn't happen. And I'm not a person bent to that kind of thing. But uh, thank God we made it through COVID-19. All right. But here, I want to just say this. What we're doing, just to, to reinforce the fact that what we're talking about here with Jesus and the resurrection is that it was a physical resurrection. I've read, I've read articles by skeptics, some well-known, well-known people, and they just want to kind of dismiss it. Oh, by the way, you know, just to say this briefly, there is, even once you go through what I'm about to demonstrate here, well, I'm not, the scripture does, the bodily resurrection, because we're so anti-supernatural and secularism has so captured our culture and society, I don't care what you bring forward to unbelievers, they're going to brush it off, dismiss it, and treat it as trivial and didn't happen. So don't be shocked. You say, well, how can you deny all this? That's because they say, well, you got your truth, we got our truth. All right, but this. Physical resurrection. Jesus was touched by human hands. Jesus' body had flesh and bones, Luke 24, 39. Jesus ate physical food. I don't know that my first request would have been to eat broiled fish, but uh, you got to go with what was important and what was nutritious, and he did eat it. Jesus' body has his, has his wounds. That's interesting. Jesus' body was recognized. Jesus' body could be seen and heard. Resurrection is out from the dead. Soma, the word used for body in the past, S-O-M-A, soma, always means a physical body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. The grave clothes unwrapped. So it was a bodily resurrection. And you know, the thing that I come away from with this matter of the real physicality of the, of the death of Christ is that Christianity is not based on subjective personal experience. Watch out here. Watch out. I'm glad we didn't sing this song. I was a little, I looked immediately when I got the order of songs. There's one we sang, and we betrayed something when we sang it. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Uh-uh. He lives because of the facts and the proofs that are given in Scripture. Oh, I don't, sure, there is the validating work of the Spirit of God who indwells us and takes Scripture and firms up our convictions. Yes, I get that. But we don't make up the truth of the resurrection based on experience. Christianity rests on the, upon the foundation of facts in time and space. It's rooted in historical realities. And our faith is based on proofs, not on personal visions, 
voices in our head, feelings, preferences, but on the sure foundation of the eternal word of God. Well, that could be another kind of sermon, but I want to say a couple of personal things here, uh, family-wise, if you will allow me to do that. With regard to this matter that Jesus is a victor over death, what's that mean? Um, some of you know, Beth and I have been through this, this past year. It's been quite a journey with a dying family member, Cliff, Beth's brother. As I had indicated in one of my morning minutes that Cliff, a year ago in March, we had walked together down the beach at St. Simon's, past the lighthouse, through the village. When he got back to, uh, to Nashville after that stay, in, uh, he was immediately, it was immediately found that he had a, a brain tumor. The, the, cancer, the cancer, the prostate cancer had metastasized and had gone into these rogue cells had gotten into the body and it showed up there. Had that surgery. Well, that began a year ago in March, a series of these chemotherapies every three weeks. And we could see a real fight going on. It wasn't painful, but we knew that, we didn't know how it was going to end. Is this prolonging his life? Well, it seems to have. But, the, we, but we could see what was, what was taking place. And so it meant that Martha, Cliff's wife, uh, she was managing the situation beautifully. We would go and visit them, went up there once a month, stayed a week every month, and trying to be of encouragement and be encouraged because they had biblically normalized the thing in such a mature way that we came back, did we go on a vacation? <laughs> and it was so extraordinary. And so, yes, but there was organization, there was patience. I didn't see, I didn't hear Cliff complaining. Here's this six foot three college basketball player who was just <laughs> weakened. Had to follow him around, walking, walking him around with a web belt around his back, around his stomach, to keep him from falling. He fell 18 times. And all of this. But oh, there was kindness. There was family. There was FaceTime. And all of this. Um, I, I'll, ju I'll just, I want to kick this a little bit. That I find some Christians don't seem to face up to the fact that death is an enemy and it's real. The way they begin to talk when something comes, when, when what seems to be a, um, not a good ending, mortality, and it's, this is, you're going to die. We, we know that, we're all going to die, but sometimes Christians, I was reading a, a little snippet of a story about this lady who was saying she was dying with cancer, she, and she, there was a, I have to shorten this up, but she noted in this as she spoke of how people, she could tell that people were wanting to come in and talk about what's going to happen next Sunday, what's going to happen two Sundays from now, kind of talking around like, she's dying. That's what she was saying. She was dying. Could you? She didn't want people just playing games with her. And this word miracle gets thrown around by Christians in such a cavalier way. A miracle. A miracle is when you bring somebody from the grave to life. When you add a limb. I can't stay there. I don't want to 
I don't want to minimize in the least people who are fighting through chemotherapy and seeking to live longer, and we pray to God that it can go into remission and they can live longer and we can be with them. We wanted that. But death is an enemy. And one other thing, one other thing here is that the resurrection of the body of Christ gives us comfort, gives us comfort. Do you know that the resurrection of Christ, this is a curious thing. Go back to movies. I've seen a few movies about the life of Christ, secular and Christian, but this is especially true in secular movies. There seems to be a pattern when you get to the resurrection of Christ. You get all this horrible detail here on the cross, perhaps. But then I've noticed more than once that when you get to the resurrected Christ, you don't see him. You can hear his voice. You can see a shadow. You can see the, the cinematic uh, ways of trying to, you just don't see him. And, and the resurrection, it, it, gets, it, well, it gets spiritualized. Oh, I've heard preachers say this on a panel. I won't go through this story. I sat and watched it. A panel of a priest. It was a priest, a preacher, a Presbyterian pastor, and a Jewish rabbi discussing the resurrection. Oh, oh, how sad that account was. And you know what? Especially the Protestant was saying, I believe. I believe that the resurrection is a... It's an aspiration, a hope that God implants. We don't really know what happened there. We don't know what happened to the body, but it is instilled within us this drive to overcome and that we can, through our own suffering, we can find redemption in our own suffering. Oh, no, no. I will, I have, I have the time to do some of this. John Updike, you may know him, of him, deceased now, but he, uh, uh, he wrote this poem. I'm going to take some selections from it on this body thing, body. Jesus died bodily. He really did. And that's the key to the resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. Just a couple of things here. This is uh, seven stanzas at Easter. Now, it's in contemporary language, so you've got to be nimble here. If you've drifted off, you better come back on this reading. <laughs> Make no mistake. If he arose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh. Ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, dies, withered, paused, and then regathered out of his father's might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in fake credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. I skip to the concluding stanza. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, 
Lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we were embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Uh, I tell you, mythical resurrections don't inspire apostles to go to the ends of the earth and offer themselves as martyrs for the gospel's sake. Not at all. All right, I must come to that concluding statement. Let's come to this. Let's look at it. The resurrected Christ said that the gospel should be proclaimed to all nations. I know I'm flying over some things, but I thought this came out. It just jumps out of the text. Verse 47. The only acceptable response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does Luke, how does he sum it up? This doesn't say everything, but it says something. But he says, repentance for forgiveness of sin. Let's set up shop there for a moment. You with me? What is the, what's the appropriate response? I, I would have, I'm, I'm going to assume that probably 98% of this audience this morning that you're here because you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible that some haven't. It is possible that you could have sat through who knows how many sermons and been around Christianity and heard the gospel but never believed. But let's come back to this. He says, repent. Now, theologians have some conflict over repentance and belief. If you're not aware of this, there, there is a fraternal, fraternal uh, discussion. Do we repent? What do we repent of? What's it like? And so forth. I, at the risk of oversimplifying, I'll put it in some of the, in these words, that repentance is a Holy Spirit enabled turning, turning from a heinous spiritual crime of unbelief to serve the living and true God. Where do you get that? Uh, about First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us that what kind of reception we had with you. And you turn, Paul, writing to the Thessalonian believers, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. There it is. There it is. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So it's a turn. When you repent, you believe. When you believe, you repent. You turn. You leave that that. Uh, trusted idol that you have of unbelief, whatever the, however the unbelief manifests itself. So now you're not going down the road, I must say this, you're not going down the road to begin to repent of sins of disobedience because as if obedience is a part of the gospel and that, that you've got to obey. The obey is in the faith and trusting in the finished work of Christ. Is that clear? Let's be careful here. I, this picture comes to mind. If, you, if I had a glass of clear water, Callaway Garden water. <laughs> and I have a glass here. I'm going to let this glass full of clear water stand for the grace of God. But I take, I take a dropper and I'm going to put in, say, I need, we need to do something with this. I'm going to put in a little drop of some orange coloring. Oh, maybe a little green. Ah, does, do things change? Works works. We want to put works in there. Does it change anything? Changes everything. Changes everything. And that is discoloration. Oh, you well, we're on this just a little bit later in conclusion. Just about there, but I want us to see this. This change of heart embraces Jesus Christ and gives us the sweetness of God's forgiveness. 
So you don't need to think back, oh, did I, did I repent? Uh oh, I'm in trouble, I believe, but I didn't repent, or I repented and didn't believe. But don't get worried over things that you're manufacturing, which you've not allowed scripture to do the clarifying work on what has happened. And God is the one who saves us, not our, not our techniques, but the work of God, the Holy Spirit. All right, to have said that, uh, let me ask this pointed question. Have you repented? Have you put your trust in Christ? Have you turned from whatever you're trusting to get you to heaven? Um, oh, let me say it this way. Um, you know, I've been watching with some interest. This happens so often down at Cape Canaveral. These, do they still call them all astronauts? They come out in their spacesuits. They're going up either revolving around the earth or making plans to go to, to the moon again or tomorrow's. All right, but let's say that you get really interested in this uh, space travel thing. Is that just for rich people who can do that? Some Elon Musk can go down and pay the right price and do what he has to do. So you just say, I'm going to drive down to Florida this week. And so you get in your car and you pull up to Cape Kennedy and you go in and you come to the gate. So I'm here, I've, I wanna go to, um, I want to go out in space, the next flight. I think they're sending a rocket up here in a few minutes. And, uh, well, they send somebody out to talk to you a little further about this. Oh, we've got somebody here. They want to go up. And they say, well, you say, I'm qualified. I am qualified to do this. I'm a regular churchgoer. I read my Bible. I'm a pretty good citizen. I've always paid my taxes. And I, um, you know, I do the best I can. Uh, I've been faithful to my wife or to my spouse, as the case may be. And um, can, can, can I go? I'm, can, I'm not, am I qualified? And so, oh, you say, that's ludicrous. That's silly. So you want to go to heaven by your works, do you? So you're going to present an infinitely perfect God with our little, little pitiful works, all as beneficial as they may have been to others, but God who is eternally, infinitely perfect, he says, the only way you can get into my heaven is perfection. I'm in trouble. Perfection? Aha! I'll switch off from my Cape Canaveral story for a moment here and just say it this way. If you want to get to where God is when you die, then I'll tell you what you must do. You've got to have some righteousness. You've got to have some perfection that you don't have. That's got to come outside of you. You know who's got it? Jesus Christ does. He obeyed the law perfectly. He lived before God. Never sinned. Never, never, never. And he took our punishment. He didn't deserve it. He became in our place, took the penalty for our guilt. He didn't become a sinner. He took the place of. And because he did that in his perfect righteous life, dying in our place, we have someone to go to who can legally, legally declare us because of Christ's legal work, perfection, personal, moral perfection. We can have that righteousness which God requires because it's in Christ. What do you do? Oh, dear God, I'm a sinner. I don't... I don't deserve anything but eternal judgment. Your wrath, your wrath. 
but Jesus suffered that wrath in my place? Oh. And when the Spirit is really working to draw you and bring you in what theologians call efficacious grace, it's the Spirit of God working. You aren't cooperating with God. You're not pulling one oar and God pulling another. God working. He's working to bring you to that understanding of the gospel. And he, which you ask, you bring him nothing but your emptiness, empty hand. And you say, Lord, I trust you to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. And for that righteousness, which I don't have. And that when I close my eyes in death, I know that I can be in the presence of Christ. When I walk across that golden bridge, and then on the other side, I go through the gates of glory. I will go through the gates of glory because Christ has made the provision for me and I have put my trust in him. I conclude. I conclude with just a few looks over my shoulder on this whole resurrection. We still may say, so what? Not to minimize what I just said, but still, you know, the risen, the, 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 the risen Christ, the hope, we sang that. Thanks, you picked the song out about our hope. <laughs> that was providentially well-timed. That the risen Christ is our hope for our own transformation physically. That was of enormous importance to us as a family working through this last year and walking through the valley of the shadow of death every day. And then death did come. But that transformation, that hope of transformation. Now, okay, there's a fine point here to be made, and it's an important one. We don't get our resurrection bodies until the return of Christ. Oh, you say, if you're alert and you, you read 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, you say, God has made provision for us. He clothes us. He gives us that space suit that eternal space suit, what we need to go into the eternal house of God when we die. We don't get a resurrection body then. We will get it. And that provision for transformation, either instantly and then ultimately when we are, receive our resurrection bodies, that is because of Jesus Christ. That ought to make all the difference in the world. Now, I know we flinch. You say, I don't want to die this way. I don't want to die that way. I don't want to die screaming with pain. I don't want to die with protracted cancer just eating, up, eating, eating me up over weeks and months and building up my hopes and then dashing them. Lord, could I just not die in my sleep and then wake up and be there? <laughs> if you have your druthers, God is in charge. He's sovereign over the ways in which he wants us to walk across the golden bridge into his presence. With some it's sudden, with some it's not so sudden, and it's very exacting and difficult. And loving God and trusting him is that which we will, we will take that and love him and God give us the grace for that time. Then I'll say this in conclusion. The risen Christ is our hope for the capability for living as overcomers, living as overcomers in the here and now. Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. I'm wanting to say this, that no matter what you may be struggling with as a believer, 
whatever sin, whatever disappointments, whatever failures, whatever disillusionments may be knocking on your door, your disappointments in people or with yourself, and whatever it may be, we have the wonderful, wonderful offering of God's forgiveness in Christ that he, because of what he has done, he's made the payment. And he will forgive us. And not only forgive us, but he will restore us and enable to overcome those daily battles that we have with sin and death and suffering, the evils of sin and death and suffering. And God gives us the grace for that. Is that your hope this morning?